Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. Today's guest is Emma Barnett. She is an award-winning broadcaster and journalist. By day, she presents the Emma Barnett Show on BBC Five Live, in which she interviews key figures shaping our times currently, from Theresa May to the key decision-makers in all of the Brexit stuff that's going on at the moment. By night, she presents the BBC flagship programme Newsnight. And on BBC Four, she hosts Late Night Women's Hour, which I really recommend. I've been on there as a guest a few times and I love listening to it. It always covers really interesting range of topics. Emma was named Radio Broadcaster of the Year by the Broadcasting Press Guild recently for her amazing agenda setting interviews. Previously, she was the women's editor at The Telegraph and she now writes a weekly Agony Aunt column, Tough Love, in the Sunday Times magazine. It's always a very good read and people write in with a wide variety of problems. Her first book, Period, is out now And we talk about why she wanted to write the book. And she asks, why do we have to use silly catchphrases to talk about it? Why can't we just say we're on our period when, you know, we're at work or we're having a bad time with it? The book really opens up the question of why, as a society, we're still pretty ignorant when it comes to the workings of the female body and also what a period condition is which is quite different from suffering from the odd cramp. Emma talks really openly about endometriosis and some of the bad experiences that she's had with her period. So I hope you enjoy this chat. It was such a honour to interview Emma. She's really one of the broadcasting greats and one of the best interviewers out there at the moment so you know I was a little bit daunted but it was really fun and if you liked it please do leave a rating or a review on iTunes it really helps boost it in the charts so I hope you enjoy and see you next week. I'm so excited to have Emma Barnett on Control Out Delete. This is a moment I've wanted to have you on for ages. So <laughs> Hello. Happy. Thank you for having me. This is weird though, because last time I saw you, we were doing late night women's hour. That was the last time. I was thinking when it was, okay. And yes, you are an incredible broadcaster and like it's in so much control of the microphone and the question so I'm like sweating a bit. This is brilliant I get to relax or do I? Let's see what you've got planned. (laughs) Congratulations on your brilliant book and this is why you're here and we're going to talk about that. I actually wanted to tell the listeners before we get into that that you gave me one of my first ever little writing gigs back in the day. I believe I did. I, I met you and we got on and you had a nice idea for coming on board at the Telegraph Women's section and I I then dreamt up how we could use your skills and you used to do a little Friday chart for me, didn't you? I did, but that was so nice of you because being an editor of a newspaper of that section, you were incredibly busy and you still met up with young women to help them out. Well, first of all, I think if you're running a women's section to not meet with women uh, of all ages would be slightly remiss, remiss but no, I was very uh, into finding new voices. I still am. Mm. I really enjoy that. Uh, some of my best commissions while I was running that section were in the toilets, not just at the work, but wherever I went. Because those are some of the places you get the best conversations. That's where we should do a podcast from at some point. A podcast yeah. in a loo, that'd be great. Yeah, that would be good. That's where all the best it the is. best compliments happen as well. But no, I, I still feel if you aren't meeting the people who you haven't heard of yet, then you aren't meeting the right people most of the time. Mm. So I, I greatly enjoy, I remember us meeting and I enjoyed yeah. it. It was crazy. It was like eight years ago now. It was. And here we are. <laughs> and um, you're, you're, you're <laughs> reciprocating. You're having me in your booth, which is a very nice booth, may I say. It's very nice. I'm going to pretend it's my house. Um, 
I loved the Wonder Woman section of the Telegraph because you covered a lot of different topics and you didn't really hold back at all. And in the book, you talk about when you went on the pledge and you started talking about periods. It was off the back of a piece, wasn't it, for the Telegraph about yeah, so calling in sick or? There was, um, when I used to co present this Sky News show called The Pledge, we each used to pick something that week that had caught our eye. And it was about a company in Bristol that had become the first one in the UK to launch menstrual leave, which is a policy actually more popularly favoured in. In Southeast Asia. It's popular in the sense that the companies offer it, but women don't take it up. Uh, if you're a woman listening to this thinking, I would never take up menstrual leave. I would hate to be seen as weak. I would hate to be seen as different. You're not alone because the uptake is so low. But I wanted to debate whether it was a good idea or not. And yes, I think one of the, the pieces came from the Telegraph. And while I was writing, we used to do kind of an intro script where you'd stare down the barrel of the camera lens. While I was writing my <laughs> intro script, I was really in agony. I was coming on my period and I was thinking, well, I'm talking about menstrual leave. I'm talking about periods at work. So I'll just say I'm menstruating. And I did that. And apparently it's the first time it's been done live on TV news in this country. And it did have quite the effect, apart from the fact that the colleagues around me, whether that was Nick Ferrari, my fellow broadcasting friend, Rachel Johnson, the journalist, Graham Lesseau, the former footballer, Jun Sarpong, fellow broadcaster, apart from the fact they all looked like they sort of vomited and then swallowed it and had to keep going. <laughs> I love how you describe <laughs> the reactions of them. Apart from that, uh, people kept coming up to me in the street afterwards. I mean, a lot of the time you get reaction on social media straight away and then that's it. But no, when I was buying some fruit a few weeks later, a woman came up to me and said, thank you for just saying you were having your period mm. and it hurt. And she told me all about her problems. So yeah. it seemed to spark something. And is that where the, the book kind of stemmed from, those conversations? Or I know the book isn't, it's about global issues as well. It's not just a zoning yes. in on, on like the personal, but no, it I'm, is really great to hear you speak up on that. I think that it's funny, isn't it? I didn't wake up that day and think, right, I'm going to have this conversation and then a book will be born. I think a good thing about when a book comes to you is if it really does just come to you rather than you sitting there trying to think, I want to write about this at length. Because normally mm. most things I think, there are a lot of books out there that should just be articles, I'll put it like that. Mm. But there are things that really do warrant more investigation. And I felt that women and men kept coming up to me with stories or getting in touch through my radio show on Five Live because we did a study on periods in the workplace and how women kept lying about it. They'd rather say that they had the shits to their boss than mm. a regular natural monthly occurrence if it was making them feel a bit peaky that day. And I just kind of felt actually there was something quite powerful about somebody like myself writing a book like this. And I say that because I am often associated with politics, certainly especially at the moment with what's going on with Brexit and a lot of the political interviews I do. And I had a woman come to one of the events in Manchester that I was doing for the book the other day and she said, oh, you know, my husband's a big fan. And then someone else also said, oh, my boyfriend really likes your work and they wouldn't come this evening. And I said, why? And they said, well, they thought you would have written about something important like politics. I saw your tweet on this. And yeah, I was shocking. really dismayed because it wasn't important enough to talk about periods, the stigma, some of the funny things, some of the sad things, some of the genuine health issues that arise by not being able to easily talk about it or describe it. We can get into all of that. And then I thought, no, Emma, that's why you wrote the book. I'm not interested in being offended, but I have to say I, my breath was taken away by that. Do you think that there's more of a challenge for you as a female? I mean, this, this question, I'm like rolling my eyes at myself, but it's like... <laughs> that's always you, a good sign. But, but do you have to? <laughs> it's almost like, for example, Paxman doesn't have to like prove himself in the way of like I'm serious if this devalues me in your eyes in any way or makes you think I'm not serious enough that's great the fact that women's issues get put gets put into a box marked not serious frothy stupid pink whatever you want to call it and actually the book is 
quite a good shade of pink as opposed to period red. I really couldn't give two stuffs. I mean, Jeremy Paxman, and I've interviewed him myself, he likes to write books about coal, about the monarchy. He did write a book about his broadcasting career, of which I really enjoyed lots of that because, you know, entering into the BBC at a different time, but when he left as well, it's quite an interesting insight. But no, I I think if that's what it does, then that is great fun. Mm. Bring it on. But at that event, because you said on Twitter that you were a little bit not down because of it, but it was a bit like, oh, that's that does suck though that these men just feel like they can't come. And it's not nice to hear someone go, oh, my cousin is a fan but didn't come. Like it doesn't so for an author, you want people to come to the events. Of course you do. However, I think what I've realised is the first part of talking about this book is going to be to the audience that I care deeply about, just as deeply about, I should say, and can relate with and perhaps we can share stories and that's happened a lot with already. I've decided the second half of the tour I'm going to rename Hostile because I really want to try and get two people who don't want to read it. And that's the challenge. I mean, this was kind of the interesting thing about doing a feminist section at The Telegraph. A lot of people had a problem with it when we launched it, when when I came up with the idea, because feminism for a long time had been seen as the preserve of the left. And one of the great myths about being a right of centre paper, and I'm not talking about the Brexit coverage now or anything that's happened since, I'm now just talking about feminism and women's issues, is that it should only appear in left-wing papers. But actually, the big myth about right-wing newspapers and right-wing spaces is anything goes. Absolutely anything goes. So we had people writing for that section from Katie Brand through to Kathy Newman, through to Brooke McNanty was the Belle du Jour, through to yourself, through to people from all walks of life, politicians from both sides of the divide. And one of the reasons it was so important, I felt, to do a women's section at the Daily Telegraph was because it wasn't preaching to the converted. There were lots of readers who were interested in it, lots of readers who'd probably been patronised and thought they wouldn't agree with lots of what was written there and there wasn't just one view written there it was it was I found it counterintuitive half the time what we were doing some of the time and I was excited by that I'm did not, you have male readers? We did. And I present Woman's Hour, Late Night Woman's Hour mainly now. And 1.3 million, I think, of the listeners are men on that as well. Yes, you may say there are a certain kind of man with certain interests or views already to be tuning in actively to Woman's Hour. I loved the challenge of The Telegraph was putting some headlines on it that I knew would capture men who didn't think that article was for them, but they couldn't help but click on it. Mm. And I'm not talking about clickbait, actually. I'm talking about things that were for them that wouldn't normally get to them. Yes, and, and I love the chapter is it called man blood male yes. blood all types of blood in there <laughs> <laughs> but then i find that whenever i do podcast events my podcast is actually just about business and careers like it's actually not just for women but i look out at just a crowd of women and people are like oh you should do more to get men in but i'm like that's another to-do list yes well it's not just about men though i must stress there are many women who've wrinkled their nose when i said i've written a book about periods mm. and men who've said as well and women who've said which period of time have you written about and I've said no the one in my pants and then the look on the face is just brilliant um it's about what is the joy in only preaching to the converted I thrive generally in my journalism and in my broadcasts in the awkward and in the difficult you know for instance when somebody apologises for being racist or sexist I'm never interested in the apology Mm. never I'm interested in why you did it and do you still hold those views? And if you do, because you don't quite understand why you were wrong, how can somebody, if you were wrong, disabuse you of those views? I'm never interested in an apology. I'm always interested in why you said it in the first place. Yeah, I really wanted to ask you about that, actually, because when you talk about even that example during the pledge, it's clear you really enjoyed making people squirm. And with your interviews, you're very composed in these interviews. When when I watch the videos, you seem very calm, but are you enjoying the juiciness of that? I'll make a distinction. I think 
for people to become squeamish about something that shouldn't be squeamish, like periods, which are so regular for a lot of people. I mean, they may be irregular, but such a normal part of our lives or should be. And then for people to have a disproportionate reaction, I'm extremely comfortable in that awkwardness because somebody needs to be and somebody should normalise it. (laughs) I seem to have anointed myself uh, chief period correspondent at this time in our lives. What I don't enjoy is making somebody feel awkward for the sake of it. You know, I'm not there to, to bully or to create an environment that's awkward for others' entertainment. However, where I suppose, and maybe this is a weird part of my personality, let's say you are interviewing a politician. They have come on about something that they want to talk about, should know about, should know all the basics to do with, never mind, uh, if you like, the nuances of the argument, and then they don't know it. You have to be awkward, sorry, comfortable in that awkwardness if they don't know it Mm. or if they can't justify it because we're paying their salaries and I have to ask the question that the man or woman at home is screaming at the radio or at the television. And yes, you have to be able to sit in that awkwardness and I think that it's a natural part of being a person and especially being a British person to try and help someone else in their awkwardness but what's an interesting thing if I could explain it like this and I only realised this recently I do lots of interviews that aren't political that aren't with politicians lots of interviews end up being political but the ones that aren't with politicians they can be incredibly sensitive they can be very difficult they can be the first time that that person's talked about that thing and my empathy And my sympathy in that situation is with that person. When I interview a politician, my sympathy is with the people they represent. And that displacement of where you're humanity lies means you can sit in the awkwardness. Mm, That's really well described. Because, yeah, it's not about them as an individual. You have a responsibility to ask on behalf of all the listeners. Yeah, so if you're the health secretary and there has been a lack of funding for nurses, I'm asking on behalf of nurses. Yeah. It is interesting then that people have like branded you in this way because like you say you've done lots of different interviews before you've written about many different things and then it's kind of this like the cover of the times where it was like the Rottweiler and and it's and <laughs> it's, it's but it's not it's not necessarily true then maybe that you are this I did have someone write to me after that saying I I really don't feel comfortable with that description because you're not a dog that's been trained to kill. I I feel you do listen and then you react to what someone has said and you you keep going. That's not the definition of Rottweiler to me. But no, I mean, perhaps it is that composure. I don't know what makes people call me those things. Also, we're living in a time where language on the internet is also very extreme. If an interview goes wrong, I'm not talking about my interview here, but goes wrong for the interviewee, it's a car crash. It's a bust up, it's a wipeout, so-and-so destroys. Like We are in a politically fraught time, so I think that the language associated with it has become thus. And I don't know, perhaps there is still at times a surprise when a youngish woman, I don't think I'm young anymore. You definitely are. Am I 34? Is that that my age? Yes, it is. Is that young? I don't know. Likes her politics and gets on with it. I don't know. I mean, with the book, obviously, because you are on the other side of the microphone a lot and then now you're talking about yourself for the (laughs) book and you've been interviewed and it's been really interesting hearing about it. But one of the things that I think I knew about you a few years ago because you wrote something about it was endometriosis. And it is crazy how many people have to Google that, isn't it? 
Why, do, you know why do people not know about it? I didn't it even still? know. To, I, I've got something else. It's called adenomyosis and I can't even uh, spell it. I had to double check this morning. I don't even put that in the book because to my shame, they know so little about it, the doctors, in terms of helping you with it. It's another web of your womb not working properly. It's it's cells within the wall of your womb giving you pelvic pain. And actually, I looked up this morning because I'm going through quite a difficult time at the moment with my period health, if I could put it like that. And I don't quite know what's giving me lots of pain and my legs are aching and I'm dragging myself around like an old lady. Um, and when I looked up cure for adenomyosis this morning, it just said hysterectomy. And I thought, well, that's a bright way to start a Monday morning. No, most people don't know what it is. One in 10 women have it. It takes an average of seven years to be diagnosed. It could be more women. And we don't have any suggestions other than hysterectomy, which is the most extreme suggestion, I must say. The coil, the marina coil, get pregnant or go on the pill. Mm. And you live with bone grinding pain every month. I don't want to sound dramatic, but I don't think I am when I say that it does suggest that people just don't care about women's health. Because where's all the research? And it's even with pregnancy, you know, the whole like, oh, you can drink this amount or you can not do this. Or no one's really looked into like women over the years. Isn't it interesting that where we do know the most, it's about fertility and how to use what women have to Mm. create the next generation. And I'm not saying that that's bad. I had IVF. I'm a huge beneficiary of that wealth of knowledge and I am so grateful for it because without it I wouldn't have our son. And I had it on the NHS and it was just amazing and it's one of the most incredible things about being British actually. It came from this country, IVF. It's gone all around the world and millions of babies have been born. However, you're right, there's this huge gap about everything else to do with specifically women's health. So there's obviously loads of research into diabetes. My mother has Crohn's disease, that's getting better now. Uh, Also immune disorders are still quite uh, under-understood. Um, obviously, cancer, things that goes across. I think the one big exception is breast cancer. So that's the one area of women's health that I think is really mm. looked at properly compared to, let's say, there have been comparisons to prostate cancer, which perhaps isn't as well funded. So just to say that. But what goes on with our womb and what goes on with our periods and what goes on with our sex lives, everything linked in that area. There's a public health study I quote in the book. Mm. And it's astonishing how many women are just staggering around thinking that painful intercourse, horribly painful periods. They might not have endometriosis. They may have other things going on. They may have fibroids. They may have polycystic ovaries. They may have downpours. There's all these sorts of things that can happen. And they don't get any answers if they even go to the doctor. What I should say is when I made that programme with um, on Sky News, The Pledge, where I said I'm menstruating right now, it really hurts. One of the other reasons, Emma, that pushed me over into writing this book is that I was so unbelievably shocked that I had a period condition. I didn't know when I made that broadcast. I knew something was wrong with me. I was trying to get pregnant. It, it wasn't working, but it was actually the pain I was having each month wasn't normal. And I've been told my whole life, I'd seen doctors again and again, just take a really strong painkiller. And you start to feel it's in your head. You start to feel a bit mad. Even now, the fact that I don't know how to look after myself again, I've been taking the pill back to back. I've just been getting worse and worse over the last month. And I don't have any answers because no one does. They just say these same three things to you. It's like with physical and mental health, when someone diagnoses someone, I've just heard that people just feel this relief of like, oh, it's not me. This is an actual thing and condition. It's a bit like women back in the day were told they were hysterical. If there was even a complaint of something about themselves, I think you do feel almost like you've been gaslighted. Because I wanted to ask you a bit about, I know that the book is about blood. That's in the chapter titles and it's such a brilliant book. 
I couldn't help thinking when I was reading it that my kind of getting to that point where I'm like, I feel weird and I can't work today properly is hormonally I really suffer. And for two days of the month, I just, I'm not myself. And I don't want to use the language of like the hysteria or like going loopy, but I kind of can't convey it sometimes. And I'm like, but my body is doing this to me. And I don't want to be like this crying woman in the toilets, but that's what a period can do to you. I think it's a really sensitive area that has been shied away from by feminists and other women very understandably. But I think now is the time to have the conversation. We're at a stage where I get when women burst into the workplace, and when I say burst, I mean very slowly started to enter the workplace, (laughs) like, hi, I'm human too and I need to pay my mortgage if they'll let me have one without a male signature. When we got in there and I pay total tribute to all the women who fought and men to get us in there and, and allow us the opportunity to be equal, I get that you didn't want to say, oh, and by the way, every month I feel a bit weird, so I might need you to open that window. I might need to sit here with a hot water bottle if if I'm stacking shelves, I might need a, a seat next to me. I get that you didn't want to, if you were part of those first pioneering waves, talk about anything that differentiates us. But the main thing that differentiates women from men is our ability to have children. And that is linked to our menstrual cycle. You don't have to use your cycle to do that. You might, Your cycle might not be up to it. Mine certainly not without a lot of help. I get that it was ignored in that respect, deliberately so. But I do think now in the era of mental health being discussed, in the era of trying to bring our whole selves to work, in the era of being who we are, I think there is room to talk about this. There's room to be, you know, you see women who, I think it's really interesting that the menopause is having a moment where people are trying to be more honest in the workplace and there's menopause policies because that's when women are at the top of their power usually in an office. Periods, you've got them from the age of 10, 11, 12, whatever you were. And you're not going to start mounting a campaign for free sanitary towels and tampons when you're 22 just starting in an office, are you? Menopausal women are usually much more powerful and they're at the peak of their career. So I get that. But periods are being forgotten. For the record, I don't believe in menstrual leave. I believe the policies we have in companies can more than encompass it. I also need to make a distinction here at this point that if you have a period condition like endometriosis, that is different. And that is different from me feeling hormonal in the toilet. Totally. But you could schedule yourself, if you have that freedom in your job, to perhaps not take meetings that day or perhaps work slightly differently. Yes, there'll always be the argument some women will abuse it. But some men and women already do abuse what's there. Mm -hmm. Most people want to do okay in their work. They want to have a level of pride. They want to do all they can to keep a roof over their heads and progress and see themselves rise and and fulfil their capabilities. May I also just point out that forget maternity leave, which is still not a perfect situation in terms of payment and people coming back into the work and all of that. But that's a whole other book or conversation. But just forget that part. May I remind everybody, women were pregnant up till the end of pregnancy. That still shocks me. In, <laughs> in Wired magazine, they ran a report the other day that having now been pregnant, and I actually did have a good pregnancy, it's one of the only times my, my body sort of started to work well in that way. It's the equivalent of running an ultramarathon every day, your body, and you go and do the same job you were doing before. So you try and tell me a woman can't be honest about her flow and then isn't someone to trust. I'll tell you she's not a woman to be messed with and you should trust her because someone who can have that confidence in where they work to be who they are and talk about those sorts of things and still perform is a woman you want to work with. Yes. And and that's the thing. It's not that we need to like talk about it all the time necessarily, but 
it would be nice to get to a point where we don't need to. This is bringing back a really horrible memory of when I was at school and I had a male teacher and I was and I like put a tampon up my sleeve. So I was like, oh my god, I really need to go and you change this. Did the sleeve this. smuggle? Did the sleeve? And he was like, where are you going? And I was like, uh, and. And I was so embarrassed that I had a tampon. I can't tell you, I went bright red. But I think that as a small but important example shows you, if men had periods, you know, there is that amazing Gloria Steinem essay, 40 years old, where she says they'd be standing on the corner of streets going, I'm a three-paired kind of guy. And they'd be talking about how much blood they'd like let out that month. Apart from the fact I do actually think some form of menstrual leave would be baked into HR policies around the world. Tampons and sanitary towels would be free. When they mandated that soap and loo rolls should be there in the toilets, they would have put those in as well. And if they weren't, I can tell you right now, the red mile, as some people call it, when they go to the office at work and they're on their period, you wouldn't have a bag within a bag that you have to then take to the toilet, get the bag out of the bag and then put the bag... You know, the whole kerfuffle around it just wouldn't exist. And the concealment, I get it. It's been something that people feel like they needed to do but I just don't think we do no. anymore I, but that's hard you know I interview people for the book just to say one woman very successful in sales northern woman very straight talking and I'll, I'll never forget she told me that she sat on plastic bags that time of the month during a period every month for most of her working life never spoken about it to anyone because she leaks so badly and that's a grown woman silently mm. sitting on plastic bags who can't say to a colleague I can't do this car journey today, or if I can, this is why I'm doing this. But this is the funny thing about blood, is that I know many people, including myself, that have like bled through things. And yet we watch like horror movies and men love watching blood on TV, but like the tiniest bit of period blood is apparently gross. It's, it's a quote, I've done quotes at the beginning of each chapter, and she's an artist, Maya Schwartz, and she says, I'm not going to get it quite right, but she says something like, menstrual blood is the only one not born of violence, and yet it disgusts us the most. And when I read that, I was like, yeah. I had a really interesting moment the other day at one of the other talks and Rosie Boycott was on the front row, which is a terrifying experience if you've got any familiarity with who Rosie Boycott is. She created Spare Rib, one of the mothers of feminism in this country. She's now a crossbench peer. She's got many other accolades to her name. And I suddenly thought, oh gosh, okay, this is going to be interesting. What if she doesn't like the book? This is going to be a good debate publicly. I don't know. Anyway, at the end, she came up to me. Good news was she really liked the idea of it. She bought a couple of copies Thanks, Rosie. Very grateful, very relieved, very sweaty at that time. But she said to me, in Spur Rib, which I used to go and have a look at in the library, if I could get an older copy of it, didn't do periods. They did not cover periods because they were squeamish about it. And this is the feminists of Spur Rib. Whoa. She said we could write about abortion, could write about all sorts of things, couldn't do that. So I just That's think crazy. This, that was just a real moment for me. Yeah. And the book does talk about period poverty across the world and obviously our problems seem smaller definitely than what is going on across the world where people have to like make their own pads or they don't can't have any or they skip school because they're embarrassed and they're you know I think it's very emotional actually for any woman who reads it because it's just you're immediately connected by something and I wondered it is having a moment this period poverty movement isn't it and I know Amica George has done so much but how come it's only happening now do you think I think social media for Amica was was a huge tool I also think especially covering politics as much as I do there's very few moments where somebody raises an issue and you think that's solvable lots of the time when you hear issues about schooling health uh, police prisons you think that's really hard it's a really deep legacy it's requiring of money into personnel it requires a different way of thinking but we've always done it like this in one of the largest economies in the world period poverty should not exist you know it just shouldn't be a thing and i think actually it's due to a mixture of 
shame starting to lift around certain parts of the body and social media helping with what I feel very strongly about a feeling of pride and mm. I would love people to have period pride and that doesn't mean they have to talk about their period all the time it's just the feeling I don't want them to have the feeling that they can't but I also think lots of people for instance didn't know that our tampons and sandwich towels were taxed as luxuries and once they learned that they were up in arms about it. And it always now, makes me think of Desert Island Discs and the luxury item. Exactly. Well, the crocodile meat isn't a luxury item in this com- country. And Jaffa cakes aren't. And Jaffa mean. cakes and some other stuff that you just think, what? But our right to bleed is not mm-hmm. a right, you know, it's not a luxury to be able to absorb that. So I think the internet has brought a whole group of people together and allowed people to be educated about something that wasn't being talked about. The pink tax does annoy me. I, I know that all my products and razors and everything are so much more expensive than my boyfriend's. And sometimes I feel like I should be reimbursed. Like all women should just, <laughs> or just get... use his razor. <laughs> oh, yeah, all that. So, my last question, and I feel like I would beat myself up if I didn't ask you it, even though it's cliche, but you are someone who I think does so many different things and you are across, you know, you've got your column and you've got your shows and you've got this book. You, you just, you're, you're always doing things. And are you just really good at time management? How do you, <laughs> how do, are you cloned? Are there three of you? Yeah. I ju- and I know that now you, you're your son. Yes. Like, I'm sorry. He's not I'm writing s- any columns yet. <laughs> I mean, I did worry his first phrase, maybe customs union or single market or period or tampon tax. <laughs> all the things he's heard his mother talk about while he was in gestation. So time management is the question. Well, just how do you do it all? How do you do it all? Sounds like a cosmopolitan um, 80s title. But, you know, you get a lot done. And I just wondered for people listening, you know, is there anything, any advice you can impart on us? Do you want to know a really geeky thing I don't think I've ever said on microphone before one of my best friends at school used to call me commitment carol (laughs) yes that is a cool name I was much more interested in all the extracurricular stuff at school than I was actually in school uh, and the same at university anything but my course uh, which was politics so I've always enjoyed a packed schedule shall we say I'm not good at chilling in inverted commas and I say that because I recently did something on my on my five live show where I talked about I hate it when you say to somebody what did you do at the weekend they're like Oh, it's great. It's just so chilled. And it's like, chill when you're dead, mate. Like, just come on. And I know that's also makes me sound like one of those people that's, I've got to have a full diary. It's not that. It's just, I find a lot of satisfaction in the things that I have been able or found myself in a position to do. So I like doing them. But I'm going to try and be as honest as possible. I am really quite unwell at the moment and it's hard. I'm often in a position where I might have a hot water bottle under the desk or... My point is, it's not really easy and it is a commitment. I've talked about this at other points as well, but I think, you know, it's important to say I I want to do the things I'm doing and I work hard to make them happen. It's not easy and it's a choice by me and it's a commitment Mm -hmm. by me. But I really struggled on maternity leave. I found suddenly having just one thing to do, which was a job I did not know how to do, and not being in control of my own time really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think this, our generation of women, if I'm allowed to include you in that, I think we are some of the least well set up people for surrendering yourself to something that is ineffable, like motherhood, because we are, we've had to be that generation. And I know you've written a lot about this to kind of get up and go and find the things that we want to be able to do and you know another taboo let's go there make money and make things work for ourselves and I suppose I love trying to make really amazing opportunities work that I have you know either managed to get myself or have come my way through Mm -hmm. the work that I've done so 
yeah, it's a long-winded way of saying it's not easy, especially not easy with a chronic pain condition like endometriosis, but I get a lot of joy. And I tell you where I'm really lucky having the roles that I have with something like endometriosis is I get to sit down for most of my job, which is very helpful indeed, because if I was standing up a lot, it would be awful. That is good. Have you ever called in sick though with your with something really yes. bad? Like you, you there I? is a line. You know, I don't think I have mm. yet. I have been very close to it in fact very recently I was very ill last week when I was doing Margaret Atwood and I really wanted to interview Margaret Atwood because that would be a miss and she read my palm oh my goodness so why have I not listened to this I'm going to do that immediately after this um wow it was ironic I mean when you've got a job like yours I'm sure you're like (laughs) okay I can't cancel today or tomorrow or like never (laughs) no no I think I've called in ill right at the end of my pregnancy I got food poisoning and that was pretty ropey so that was definitely a day not to be in a studio lined with soft a bin with you know when people are ill on air do you know about this they line a bin with soft felt in case they need to vomit oh my god there's a there's a website which has collated the worst on air broadcast broadcasts of sick sorry just to share that audio gem um i don't do it very often no because i find if i'm just talking about endometriosis here rather than just general illness i find working through pain really helps me wallowing in it and that's not wallowing like i'm indulging but i would just wallow in it because i'd be watching daytime tv or whatever i'd be doing listening to this podcast whatever i'd still just be thinking i'm not doing what i'm meant to be doing right now and i'd feel worse yeah no it's a it's an individual thing isn't it with knowing your boundaries on but but some people couldn't in a serious point if i didn't sit down for a living and talk uh, or write I would find it really difficult yeah. really oh, thank difficult. you for your honesty on that right now as I say I'm having a difficult time and last two weeks ago I wasn't so I'm actually trying to be a bit more mindful of the fact you just can't push through sometimes there are particular things particular days which are just impossible yeah. when I was researching the book and I was looking into the history of shame where it comes from you, you look at religion and you kind of expect to see some of the answers there were some more mad ones recently like I couldn't believe that Apple forgot about periods when they launched their health app. They launched every kind of tracker for our body system, but forgot about the menstrual cycle. Uh, for it, you know, the fact we Just, don't, ha- you know, civilization continuing. That's fine. Yeah, don't worry about that, guys. <laughs> Literally, guys. Or the period emoji still not there and the whole story of that is is equally as eye-opening which is in the book or just the fact that Think's period absorption knicker brand that hails from America were told not to put their ads on the subway with the word period on because children might see it but of course they've got like slimming ads with half-dressed women all the modern and biblical reasons why shame and this culture of silence have, have come about you know I was also really interested to see what feminists of old had written and Simone de Beauvoir she of the second sex fame wrote about how actually having a job and bear in mind when she was writing would be good for women because it would help them deal with issues like their period and I really related to that I was like yes I mean not everyone can but the whole point was work is good for your mental health work is good for you in all sorts of ways it gives you structure it gives you a focus I totally must say at this point, we both have very privileged worlds where it's an enjoyable job. A lot of people don't. But I think they'd still even say, regardless of the need for the money, that they like having somewhere to go every day, something to do. So I read that passage and I included it in the book because I thought that's so true, especially back in the day when absorption aids like tampons and sanitary towels weren't around. The idea that you had to give birth and then just be a slave to washing and mangling and motherhood and everything. The idea that you could go to work, anyone who's come back from maternity leave, you do end up seeing your work 
quite like, not a holiday, but like a well-structured day versus the mayhem that then can go on with yeah. being at home. You can eat a biscuit without someone exactly. taking it. So I just think there's something about the power of work with ill health. Mm. That is so interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast because I thought I was quite clued up about periods just because I was like, I have ones and everything. <laughs> that, that's a good and, place to start. <laughs> um, but I read your book and every time I hear you speak about it, I genuinely learn something new. So that proves, I think, that the conversation still needs to happen. So. Oh, I really hope, you know, and also it's just funny. There are some funny things. Yeah, I think there are. We miss out on quite a lot of laughs. 